Sorry, you were just explaining about the difference between the Nimbinji. That's a local name for Janjari? Yes, the uh, Nimbinji is the Banjalung name oh. uh, for the, the little hairy little hairy man. Uh, and further north, uh, uh, in an another Aboriginal language group, they call it the Janjadi. Aha, uh -huh. okay. So that's, is that the Janjadi, is that in the Dom, sort of the dominating Aboriginal language group? Is there one language group that, that's mostly spoken throughout the no. land as a, as a universe, or are they all separate and individual different? Yes, they're all separate. Yeah. You know, about, in the way in India, they have Hindi that's spoken by all of India. But if you go to every region, well, actually, they speak thousands of languages. Don't they? It's not like that. Yeah. It, yeah. There's about I think there's something like 500 languages. Wow. Yeah. That are large numbers. However, uh, of course, the only languages that really survived well were across the top of Australia, where in the tropics, where uh, a Aboriginal communities were less in, impacted by uh, a, a British settlement, mm. uh, and uh, consequently, uh, um, term names for uh, for animals that are not really well known. Uh, it, it's it's quite uh, difficult to find the, the local names for, uh, for for some of these unknown animals. For the, uh -huh. the Yowie, the name Yowie, for instance, that was a name that was applied uh, in uh, central New South Wales, close somewhere near Sydney. Uh, and then f further south, they used the word Doolagal. Mm. Uh, and then up north here, they used uh, different world words, Charawara and, and, uh, and other names further north. Uh, and then so we, but so we only have a few names for a, a very few language groups that's and that's the, the languages are very similar uh they're very similar uh, and uh and and different uh language nations could understand adjacent nations uh and, however the the uh there's there's, there's been a, you know a great deal of difficulty determining the names of some of these animals from from you know sort of remoter language groups similar to um some uh, some other more archaic cultures let's so to speak are there uh, in africa i know this is a lot as well are there is one word used for a lot of different animals sometimes as well like a catch-all word um so uh, well, what's a good example of that actually uh, so in the Congo, for instance, there's, there's several names used for large animals, like the Michelian Bembe, that seem to be very similar, but in some cases describe very different creatures. Is, does that repeat itself as well in a place like Australia? We have a catch-all, no. like, like bunyip, for instance. Bunyip means a couple of things, doesn't it? Yeah, no, no. <laughs> so like the word bunyip, for instance, that was a word that was only used mm. uh, in some parts of uh, southern coastal Victoria oh. uh, and then uh, a, a different uh, language groups had different names for what appeared to be the same animal some sort of an aquatic <coughs> freshwater aquatic mammal mm. uh, and, and which was were probably seals fresh uh, saltwater seals sw swimming up freshwater rivers oh, we yeah. think <coughs> however then once um, Europeans or British 
uh, <coughs> became acquainted with these animals and, <coughs> and the local term for them, then the word bunyip, for instance, spread right across the community okay. <coughs> so that Aboriginal people uh, far from Victoria were using the word bunyip uh, uh, to describe a, an animal, you know, say to, uh, to um, English people. And the same thing with Yowie. So, uh, you know, the word Yowie is spread right across the, yeah. the nation. Yeah. Everyone calls it a Yowie. Uh, however, uh, uh, the different Aboriginal language groups have have their own names for them right mm. across the country. Yeah, and it so does that's fascinate the thing. me, Gary. You know, especially in a land like Australia, where really all of these changes that come in, you see a pizza effect like that, where something goes. It is used actually to explain something to the visitors, if you will, the new people, and then it's because the new people become dominant. It's sent. It, it becomes a dominant word across all of the Aboriginal cultures to talk to each other about this yes. one animal and that's that's strange to me especially in australia where things have happened actually such, such a short space of time it's not a long time yeah. that all of yeah. this is taking and place a, a perfect example is that the the word yahoo mm. was the word that was originally used for uh, the yowie mm. uh, and and the uh, uh, the english believed that it was an aboriginal word uh, the uh, Yahoo. Uh, however, Yahoo was also used to describe uh, a big hairy animal in Gulliver's Travels. Oh. And the book, and that book was written, uh, the Gulliver's Island, the island yeah. that Gulliver was shipwrecked on, it was in southern South Australia, the Kangaroo Island was oh. the actual locality. Because when that book was written, the remotest place on earth is the south coast of Australia. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. These are the kind of facts I live on. I must say. And talking about this, you, you know, you contacted me today about this Nimbinji, which is essentially a, a localised version of the Janjadi sighting. That's, yes. That was on your house. Tell me about that. That's, a, that's fascinating. Yeah, so, so uh, uh, we bought this property 22 years ago and we built the house 16 years ago, and we're surrounded by a 1,000 hectares of nature reserve, and our house is right in the forest. And so we've had koalas in the trees. We have a, a kangaroo species called a swamp wallaby. We wow. have uh, brush-tailed possums, and uh, 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 most of these animals are active at night. We have echidnas or spiny anteaters. Uh, though most of these animals you rarely see, you see the swamp wallabies more often than mm. the koalas. You sometimes hear them calling. But like most animals, they're scattered thinly across through the forest. And so, you know, if one walks by and you're not standing there, you won't see it. You yeah. know, you come out five minutes later and it's already gone by. Sometimes we hear koalas calling. Uh, but we haven't heard any calling recently, but the neighbours have. So we're on a six-acre property, wow. and we're at one and a half kilometres from the from the ocean, from the Coral Sea or South Pacific oh, Ocean. That's wonderful. And we're about ideas, oh, and and we're so we're uh, big ocean breakers and a wilderness. It's all the coastline along northern New South Wales are mostly national parks mm. with small villages, and the the, the famous 
small town of Byron Bay is about mm. 20 minutes south of us. And and then we've got the uh, World Heritage listed Gondwana rainforest in the great uh, uh, Tweed caldera, an extinct volcano covered in the largest area of subtropical rainforest, full of, wow. full of all kinds of wonderful birds. It's a giant extinct volcano with um, 1,000 metres, say th um, 3,000 foot tall um, vertical cliffs, uh, just like an, you can imagine a big volcano, but it's mm. one of the largest volcanoes. It's many kilometres across. It's 20 million years old. Wow. It's very well preserved and all the mountains are covered in national parks and and it's in those localities that you get the greatest number of reports of these unknown, unclassified uh, native uh, gorilla-like animals that mm. uh, the Australian Bigfoot uh, or Sasquatch and, you know, generally known as uh, a Yowie. Yeah. Uh, and then, but we get two species. Uh, yeah, so, and then so just recently, for instance, I had a uh, one of our local national park rangers, uh, a Bundjalung man. Uh, the Bundjalung people have uh, always uh, uh, owned and taken care of uh, northeastern New South Wales. And, and, uh, uh, and and uh, this this Bundjalung National Park ranger uh, just called in to, to uh, tell us that they were going to do some work slashing the the fire trails that run through the, oh, the yeah. forest. Yeah. Uh, the forest is um, eucalypt forest and melaleuca paperbark wetlands and banksia forest. They're very ancient forests. We've got prehistoric cypress pine forest and hoop pine forest. Some of the wow. eight most ancient forests on earth. Uh, and uh, so, you know, the national parks, it's a nature reserve, Billy Nudgel nature reserve, and they take control, they, you know, they, on very rare occasions, they'll mow it. So I asked him, uh, uh, had he had any recent reports of these mm. uh, Nimbinjis? And he said, oh, yes, uh, a couple of three years ago, they were repairing the uh, the walking track up uh, Wollumbin or Mount Warning, which is, which is a, a, a roughly a one and a half thousand uh, meter tall spire, about three three and a half thousand feet tall. Uh, it's a volcanic plug. It's all covered in rainforest. And the uh, and the ranger told us that that oh yes, they um <laughs> they could see the Nimbinji tracks. Uh, they make they have um, distinctive tracks they make through the forest, and it was. Uh, <laughs> crossing the uh, National Park walking track uh, and it's all steep country of course and and uh, so they had their big heavy tools I think they were, they were helicoptered in mm -hmm. uh, and they had their boxes full of tools and covered in tarps to keep them dry uh, and they'd placed them near the entrance of, of one of these uh, 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 Nimbinji walking trails uh, and they said when they came back the next day, uh, the Nimbinjis uh, had covered the, uh, the their, their working their toolboxes um, with large amounts of plaited hair, oh. uh, which is a distinctive thing that these Nimbinjis do. And because these are very sacred animals, and so yeah, yeah so it was this plaited hair. Wow. And the interesting thing is that um, one of the fascinating things. Uh, that 
they often appear to plait the hair of horses, their manes. Yes, uh, that's a very bizarre thing. And yet I've heard and had people tell me that and even show me photographs. Uh, 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 a very bizarre thing. So that's the first time I'd ever heard of that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and then the, another time they found that it's it's the um, the box smelt very strongly of urine and that the mm. nimbini had urinated on. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I've, I've received quite a few reports over the years. You and know, these, from my, the, my what is colloquially show. known as the um, the little fellas. Is that right? By the Aborigines, the meat eaters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, they generally just in here. They just area there. They just call them nimbinjis. Yeah, nimbinjis. or nimbins. Okay. Yeah, nimbinji to nimbin. There's a famous small village, the town of Nimbin. Uh-huh. Ah, okay. It's very well known for the yeah. as a hippie as a hippie village. And in fact, I was there in 1973, okay. the Aquarius Festival, okay. uh, which went on there for two weeks during the Aquarius Festival. It's only about uh three quarters of an hour's drive through the countryside uh-huh. from where we live and uh, uh and and uh, so there's some spectacular rocks uh there the whole countryside here is ancient volcanic and so there's mm. some uh volcanic dikes they're, they're spectacular basalt and rhyolite sounds like uh, a hiker's paradise gary Oh, it is. No, it's total paradise. It, it is complete paradise. That's why the hippies settled there. Yeah. Because the greatest paradise you can imagine in subtropical conditions, beautiful, yeah. rich, fertile soil, subtropical rainforest, no pests or anything of any consequence, and oh, uh, a perfect place for growing dope or growing food or what yeah. have you. And so Nimbin has always had been a. a uh, the, with the Aquarius Festival, of course, in '73, there was virtually no drugs or anything. Mm. Um, it was a sort of university arts festival, back back to nature sort of festival. Mm. There's only about five thousand people there. However, in Nimbin Rocks, there's a cave there, and there's this tale about how uh, a, a Nimbinji uh, was living in one of these caves, and uh, this is this is uh, prior to British settlement and and the uh, the story goes that they uh, they tried to smoke this nimbinji out by putting a fire at the entrance of this cave, but uh, it but it escaped by climbing out of a hole at the back of the cave. Mm. So that's the only actual story about the nimbinji, hence the name nimbin. Uh, and otherwise, we I had n- never heard any stories of it until people began to phone me up and tell me about. Uh, uh, observations and, and as I said on my wildlife talkback radio program now in mm. the 24th year uh, it's on every Saturday uh, morning at 6.30 in the morning every week uh, and uh, a, a chap phoned up Richard from Crabs Creek Valley which is which is close to where we live uh-huh. and he described how he was herding his cattle on his small farm and the dogs and so he phoned up he's talking to this over, uh, on, on air live on air, that the, um, the, his cattle dogs rushed over and began barking at something, so he rode over to have a look at what they're barking at, thinking it's going to be a cat. And he was astounded, the animals that he saw there, and he said he, he was a bit, he, he, he was a bit uh, 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 reticent about even describing what he saw because that was too, so astounding. And I said, well, what did you see? I was sort of thinking he's going to describe 
you know, something like a big cat or a marsupial mm. lion or a thylacine or something that could have had lots of reports of all of those. And uh, and now he described um, the three little hairy people. Wow. And uh, and one was four foot tall. And he was an Englishman as well. He's an, And from his voice, I could tell he's an, an, yeah. an old uh, English man. And uh, Unmistakable. he said, yes, and, and he said that there was a male that was covered in black hair Mm. Uh, about four foot tall, standing beside it was a female that was about three and a half foot tall and covered in light brown hair or blonde hair. Mm. And in beside that was a youngster that was always also covered in the same coloured hair as the female. Oh. And then they just ran off into the bush. Wow. Uh, and then I've received uh, a few other reports as well. Uh, Right on the edge, on the outskirts of Byron Bay, there's a suburb called Suffolk Park. Mm-hmm. And a, a, a gentleman phoned me up and I went and had a visit, a visit to the site. He said he was walking his dog uh, on, on a slope. So most of this area is cleared, but there's just small areas of bushland here and there and then very extensive areas of bushland mm-hmm. in the mountains and along the coast. On the, the, fer, the fertile rainforest, level land and eucalypt forest lands, um, and you mostly cleared about a hundred years or so ago, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but but the uh, sandy soils along the coast supporting uh, banksia and eucalypt and paperbark forests was no good for agriculture, so they were left alone. So and in the mountains, the steep mountains also with their um, uh, poorer soils uh, were also left alone. So you've got you've got um, you know sort of coastal forest intact and mountain forest and intact. Second, Gary, let me close the window here. Somebody's just started to be drilling outside. Sorry. Sorry. There you go. It's that, that's living close to people. There's always some sort of work going on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, so, so you've got, an inf- you've got forest coming down uh, 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 from the mountains. There's the, the rivers obviously created valleys Mm. Uh, because it's all very ancient, 20 million years old, the landscape. Uh, and so and so uh, uh, the ridges are covered in forest. Wow. Uh, much of it has been logged, but but the steeper country hasn't been. So you've got uh, narrow valleys and then you've usually got a bit of forest along the rivers and creeks as well. So you've got a patchwork of undisturbed I forest. Plenty of space to roam around. And I'm, I'm, I would suppose... And it's similar here, even in places like Britain, and outside of the paths that people normally walk on, nobody's walking through those forests. Oh, no. Uh, large no. groups of people trekking through those isolated forests. They're, they're following trails and walkways. Yeah. No, no one. <clears throat> I've spent my life exploring those forests off the trails, and I've never encountered another person, and, and I've oh. never come across anyone who's ever even walked that country. So I'd say, like, 80% of the country no one's ever walked through. Uh, uh, they're all in the, the level lands and the valleys and in the yeah. towns, obviously. And, of course, there's only a small population. There's, you know, there's only, I think in Byron Shire, we've got a population of about 15,000 residents, oh, wow. you know, homeowners. There might be 30,000 people altogether. Uh, and there, and okay. then there's, there's, you know, so they're, they're small, we're, we're thinly scattered. And where we live, like we've got a three-kilometre house, we're at the end of the, of yeah. the the road, and there's only another three other properties 
the uh, ultimate and, social and distancing. On three kilometres, <laughs> and otherwise you're out of my forest, yeah. So, what, so anyway. It's amazing, amazing. So, so uh, uh, this chap was walking his dog on the edge of the suburb in, in a, where it slopes up into, into a steep escarpment, <laughs> not very high, and covered in, in forest. And uh, he noticed that the dog was was uh, uh, very intently looking towards the forest. Uh, so he sat down by the dog trying to see what the dog was so interested in, thinking probably a cat, and he couldn't see anything. Uh, then he noticed there was a black, something black, whether it was a burnt stump or something. And then suddenly it got up to its feet and he realised, he said it looked exactly like a gibbon. And wow. then it ran really quickly, and it, so it was covered in black hair, and it had long arms and long legs. It looked exactly like a gibbon, and it ran off. And and I we had a search to get through the area. We didn't find any evidence. And and then uh, I had another lady uh, tell us how she was in the during the night at midnight sitting in the campfire, <coughs> and uh, she went over to pick up some more. Uh, timber some more wood to burn in the fire and as she bent over she heard someone approach her from behind and grabbed her by her hair by her ponytail and pulled her back upright and she thought it was like her husband and turned around and she said and it was uh, she was shocked to discover it was a little hairy uh, blonde haired or light brown haired man huh. uh, or, or man-like creature uh, and then it ran away, <laughs> and and uh, uh, and then I've had several other uh, reports: a, a mother and daughter riding a horse and coming across one in a paddock mm. in the middle of the day. That was black furred, and it zigzagged. It ran away. Oh no! I've listened to this one on Yowie Hunters. I listened to the witness yes. on yeah, the yeah. old show. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean that's that was very fascinating because yeah. one of the things I like about the the Australian witnesses, and I think this is a cultural thing, investigating stories here. British people, okay, we're a bit more reserved, but there's still a bit of a build up to the the tale. On the American side, there's really big build up to the tale, and and Australians, and it's one of the things I've always liked about Australians, everything is quite matter of fact and to the point, yeah. and you sort of get into the the, the base details of things straight away. And I really like that. With the zigzagging um, uh, Janjadi, I just thought, wow, that's, it, it's hard to disbelieve a person or, or to doubt a person. That gives you such a, an airtight, matter of fact, mundane in a, the, the nicest possible sense of the word, retelling of their encounter. Yeah. yeah yes. The, see, the, the Australians, we're, we're all very generally down to earth. Uh, now the city dwellers, of course, uh, are, are more uh, up yeah. Yeah. technology and stuff. You go into the country. Like we're in the countryside here, yeah. uh, and of course, I'm 73, and I grew up in a in a, in a different culture that we had virtually no technology. We had steam trains and 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 uh, uh, you know the greatest technology. Television didn't even arrive until I was nine, uh, and so yeah, we're, we're, everyone's got a very matter-of-fact, uh, uh, easygoing uh, yeah. personality. And, 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 of course, the country people, uh, they know each other. Uh, big difference to city dwellers, say. You can tell city dwellers, uh, 
they're all everyone's pushing and shoving and competing for space to, and trying oh, to get a place at a cafe or whatever. Well, and, I'm just outside of London, so that's been my life for 11 years. Um, yeah. In fact, when COVID came in, as, as much as I hate the lockdowns and all everything yeah. else, and, and I work in healthcare, everything else that happened, um, not being pushed or shoved on a daily basis in London has been a, an original and an exciting experience to me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that should be the yeah. case that I get space. It's um, it's yeah, an unexpected benefit of a terrible situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so so uh, because because you've got a small population in the countryside, obviously, and pe- everybody know knows everybody else, uh, and so everyone's very matter of fact yeah. in their style uh, the city dwellers of course you know they they don't look about because if you if you same all over the world someone's eye or something or other they might want yeah. to try to sell you something or other and yeah. they're all suspicious but the country people know each other and so there's very little crime and there's no hoaxing going on because if you tell lies then the whole community knows that's um, a reputation you know, forever that's right you know joe's you can't trust Joey, but he says he did this, that, and he, you know, what have you. Yeah. Uh, so, so, and so when people describe what they're seeing, they're describing unusual animals in the same way they describe well known animals. Mm. Mm. Uh, so, so anyway, so anyway, this, this um, sighting that happened, I think it was the 20th of November, uh, our daughter Loana and her Colombian partner, Mateo were um, staying with us for a couple of weeks, uh, you know, f- over Christmas and New Year. Uh, and they they tend to stay up, young people, they tend to stay up later than we do, my wife and I. And so we'd gone to bed and, of course, they're still up at 2 o'clock looking at videos or something. Uh, and then they they they'd turned off the, the lights and about to go to bed or go to sleep. And then they said they could hear this, Sort of a, 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 a sort of a cooing sound, some sort of unusual sound, and Matteo actually recorded it. Oh, wow. <clears throat> and I've asked for the recording. I've listened to it. It was just recorded on a phone, so it was not very, mm. very loud. But they they said they could hear two animals. One seemed to be right outside the their bedroom, and our, all the bedrooms of the house that we built 16 years ago. It's right in the forest. It's got forest all around, uh, and in an orchard, and and uh, uh, <coughs> and they could hear something. Uh, uh, all the bedrooms face the ocean, so you mainly can just hear the roar of the ocean in the distance, uh, and you can hear no no um unnat- you can hear no unnatural sounds. You know, unless mm. a plane goes overhead, you never hear anything. But nature, the birds, look at every window. There's birds of all different descriptions, beautiful parrots and stuff. Wow. Uh, within a meter of every window, every time you look outside, you're watching all of this bird life and water dragons, and you know, there's all these animals all around the house. And, so uh, I'm on a plane. I'm on my way, Gary. <laughs> and, and there's all kinds of insects, and there's cicadas buzzing and you know and there's beautiful butterflies flying around in the daytime so like it's it's always beautiful and we've got lovely gardens flower gardens and vegetable gardens and an orchard so yeah it's complete paradise and and very private uh, uh, but you're only a few minutes away and the towns here are all stunningly beautiful like broken brunswick heads there's no more beautiful town than brunswick head with creeks and rivers running through it and very antique like a bit like traditional uh, something like Brit- traditional British villages, different yeah. style, 
buildings, like the things built in the 1920s or 30s yeah. or 40s, uh, it was not old like Britain, you know, <laughs> British. Oh, British yeah. This house isn't that old, and it's 1866, I think. So it's, yeah. it's not that the oldest be, by far, it's just that it seems to be sort of a general age. Yeah, that would be very old in Australia. Yeah. You only get those buildings in the centre of the major cities and scattered around the countryside, the mm. old farmhouses. Uh, so so uh, anyway, so it's a very quiet night. You can just hear the distant roar of the ocean from one and a half kilometres away. And that's about a bit over a mile. And uh, and then they could hear this um, sound as if two animals were um, communicating uh, and so they opened the the uh, screen doors. We have we have big sl- the the bedrooms all have huge glass windows. Mm. The whole place has got big windows all around it. So you constantly got all this light coming in the daytime or at night. You're always looking into the forest, and and uh, 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 and Matteo in particular said he could hear something moving quickly. Uh, in the garden, just only a couple of meters away, say six feet away or so, uh, and then he saw it just very shadow-like. He said it had sort of shaggy hair, black hair, and it jumped onto a palm tree. We've got these beautiful bungalow oh. palms all around the house, and it jumped onto the bungalow palm and then jumped on onto the roof, uh, and uh, and and so he was shining the torch on the on the animal, uh, and. He's Colombian, South American, and so he he thought it resembled a a, a howler monkey. Uh-huh. And, and he knows the wildlife very well, and he's an artist, okay. and he uh, he loves he loves wildlife, and so so he's quite familiar with wildlife. But he was very surprised that he didn't have a tail, uh-huh. and he sort of knows that we don't have monkeys in Australia because Australia only has um, unique Australian animals from Gondwana. Yeah. And yeah, so we've got all the marsupials, the famous Australian animals and plants. But um, so, so, and he said it was looking down at them, uh, and he uh, and he uh, uh, said that it had a uh, a black face. It was covered in black shaggy hair. It was about a meter tall, uh, and it had very long arms and long legs, uh, and uh, and it had. The eyes, I think he said they were sort of, there wasn't much of a reflection, uh, eye shine, but it was only with a, the torch, uh, uh, the only the torch on his mobile phone or cell uh-huh. phone. Uh, and the, he was looking at it from oh, only four or five metres away. Uh, and then uh, our daughter, Loana, she also, you know, had a look as well. And she said it looked to her like um, a monkey face. It was peering through some vegetation, mm. uh, you know, a, a lot because we've got trees all around the house uh, and mainly smallish trees, rainforest trees. And so it was period. And she said, yeah, it did look to her like a, uh, a, a monkey-like face. And then it oh. scuttled off across the roof. The interesting thing is uh, often where I sit here, where I'm sitting right at this minute, uh, uh, this is our, our office or study, uh-huh. And and uh, 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 some on rare occasions when um, my wife Carmel has, has gone to bed and I'm going to come to bed in a few minutes, but I'm finishing off something on the computer, yeah. uh, and so the house is all the lights are all off, and the only light will be 
uh, in the office here, and then I've heard something on the roof right above oh. the office. And now we do have possums and koalas, but yeah. they never come anywhere near the house, and we've never had any of them on the roof. Uh, and of course, possums and koalas have big claws, it's and so it's uh, yeah. yeah, you hear them scratching. Uh, and but whatever was on the roof each time, and then this didn't happen very often, uh, but it, it must have happened over the 16 years we've lived here. It's only happened five or six times probably. But uh, I'd be listening to something up on the roof and thinking that's very strange. What what is that? You know, and then I'd decide it has to be a possum. So I'd go out with a torch or flashlight and have a good look around and, and possums. Usually, if there's a possum around, if they see you, they um, they get upset at you, and males in particular, and they have this sort of a sort of a call. The marsupials have typically very similar calls. Some of them very powerful calls. The koala is the most powerful of all, and the yellow-bellied fluffy glider, the gliding possum. But 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 they just if you shine a light on them, they just uh, perch there and look at you. They, you know, they don't. Uh -huh. They're really slow-moving animals. Oh, so they much. freeze almost. Yeah, they tend to freeze and just yeah. look at you, and then they'll look at you. And if you get if you begin to get too close, and they'll climb higher up and look at you. Mm. So they're easy to see. So I would shine the torch around everywhere, expecting to see a possum, and find absolutely nothing at all. Huh. And so I've never seen. <laughs> seen anything like this that is, around the this is amazing to me gary that all this time especially in your prof profession and with your your love for uh, unknown wildlife that you could be could have been receiving visitations this whole 16 years and they're saying gary we're here <laughs> we're on the roof and there you are heading out into the you know into the forest and the jungles looking for odd creatures and they've been there all the time and with this with this description of the nimbinji uh, from your, uh, your son-in-law, your, your, your daughter's partner, looking like a, um, a howler monkey or a gibbon of some kind, was the face? Did, did it have a muzzle then, or was it flat? Did they did they see that detail? It 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 seemed it it uh, I it, it had a, a it, it didn't have a large muzzle. It had a fairly flat face, you know, yeah. a slightly pronounced um, yeah. uh, jaw or mouth. Uh, and then uh, uh, I've got the illustration that uh, Matteo oh, yeah. and, and yeah, I've got it on the computer, and I've been wow. going to publish it, but I haven't got round to it yet. Okay. Uh, and and uh, but anyway, so when I saw his illustration, I said that looks very much like a gibbon, mm. uh, and that's interesting because I've had reports of an animal, you know, that that um, people have described. Uh, if they've looked on the internet to try to find out what it is, they go, oh, there it is, it's a gibbon. But, of course, most people, they don't really know the wildlife. Most people aren't yeah. all that interested in wildlife. So, you know, they wouldn't know maybe that there's no gibbons in Australia. So anyway, I said, look, have a look at the gibbons on the on the internet. Uh, and uh, he had a look. He said, oh, yes, that's exactly what it looked like. But he didn't know gibbons existed. Mm. With the Jinjardi, other Jinjardi and Nimbinji sightings, would the proportions, the long arms and long legs, like the given, would that match with this recent sighting, or would it be? Do you think it's something slightly different to the Jinjardi? No, I think it's. I think it's very similar. 
Yeah. Uh, I think it's very similar. But I mean, remember, if you've got a short observation of something, mm. uh, and if it had fairly long arms and legs, you might imagine that the, the yeah. legs and then the arms are longer than they really were, or they were shorter. Yeah. It's a bit difficult to know. they were proportionately longer in general, I suppose, because something that's a metre high with long, long arms and long legs, you would assume that the, the body is quite short in that case, or appears yeah. to be short in comparison. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. Um, it, what's fascinating about it is I was just literally this morning thinking I've got to get in touch with Gary and speak about a few projects that they've got coming up. And then your message just appeared from the future on my phone. <laughs> and see, the interesting thing, around about 2008, I found uh, an amazing stick structure down at the bottom of the oh. property. Uh, and, and wonderful little footprints, which I photographed and which I oh. published uh, in in the Australian Zoologist in my oh. uh, scientific paper, the first um, cryptozoological study ever published in a scientific uh, journal. Mm-hmm. And I can actually show you the footprints if you I'd want to have to. a look. Yes, please. Yeah, hang on a minute, I'll just grab them. Yeah, no problem. So that's the the Australian zoologist. This is the dangerous ideas in zoology edition, two thousand and seventeen. And I only I only submitted this article because they wanted really dangerous ideas. Uh, uh, I presented the, uh, the uh, my study. It, it, it's a, a, a citizen science study because it's based on. Uh, at the time, it was based on about 18 years of uh, uh, wildlife talkback, uh, live-to-air radio broadcasts from ABC North Coast Local Radio, uh, and uh, and so it was. I recorded the uh, the name and date and location and the description of every animal that um, people phoned up and described wanting identifications for. Uh, and uh, and so, uh, you know, I undertook a, a study. I wasn't expecting to receive any reports of unknown animals, and I received reports of yowies right from the very first program and thylacines wow. and other such things right from the very first program. I, I, I received literally thousands of reports, but <laughs> there's only a couple of hundred reports of animals unknown to science but still that was a lot of reports uh, and so anyway so that's how come I wrote this study uh, and then I I'll just get this that's okay that's okay but it's it's, it's fascinating to me I, that in my so, opinion the age of exploration never ended we just assumed we found everything and even in our own countries we just We've kind of closed the borders or closed the lanes and said, "Well, that's that's explored. That there's Google Maps. You can see it. It's all there. We know what's going on." And it seems yeah. to be terribly um, egotistical. It's a big assumption, essentially, to yeah. think we could possibly explore the entire world, even our own backyard. Yeah, yeah. Now that that's right. And and see, if you're a biologist, uh, and I'm like basically a zoologist, botanist. Uh, and so uh, there, are, and especially in a place like Australia, but the same would be in Africa and and South America. 
uh, where you've got incredible biological diversity. Mm. Uh, there's always new species being found, mainly small animals or plants, uh, because the, the size of the of the landscape is vast. I mean, yeah. Australia is the size of all of Europe, with 24 million people living it, yeah. and they're nearly all in a few cities on the coast. And most of the countryside, if you look at a map of Australia, it's like you'd imagine the United States yeah. with, with one road across the top, one road across the, the bottom of the, of, the, of the nation and one road up the middle with yeah. airs. Air, literally. Um, I mean, air actually, top, literally. And street, literally, yeah. And, and then lots of roads along the coastline. But meanwhile, you've got these vast mountain ranges, which are so rugged, which with um sheer escarpments and deep valleys that uh, uh and so remote even though they're close to the towns that it was only 20 years ago they found the awalamai pine which was yeah. just in one gorge they found about 40 of these trees that are over 100 feet high you know they're like 30 or 40 meters and and uh, and they date from the jurassic and they're only known from fossils for 150 million years. And here was a population of them within 150 kilometres of Sydney, like 100 miles of Sydney, there's a group of trees that are survived from the Jurassic. And they're so spectacular to look at. They're like no other tree on Earth. The, the nearest thing would be, say, the monkey puzzle tree, which they're distantly related to, the southern pines. And, and that's in you know that's in the Blue Mountains and the Wollamai Wilderness. It's all National Park because it's so rugged. Uh, and so, uh, and uh, I've I've got friends who grew up in that area, uh, and and they uh, they had a farm, and there was a, an Aboriginal family still living traditionally, and there was also a family of Yowies living there traditionally, uh, and they used to ride over to to visit them, and they'd take uh, one time they took an old horse blanket to the Yowies and they wrapped their baby in it, you know, and uh, wow. and and the. The father um, described them, they called them Bigfoot. The Aboriginal people called them Bunyips. They lived fairly close to each other. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and this friend, Melanie, uh, uh, she, uh, she uh, uh, thought of them as sort of big monkeys. And then sometimes, you know, as they were growing up and they were getting braver, they were, they were a bit frightened of them, but sometimes they would ride their horses and chase chase them away and they'd run screaming and, and they could hear them talk they could hear them communicating uh-huh. uh, and this is 1970s like within wow. within about you know within about 40 50 miles of the city of newcastle and 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 nobody you know the rest of the community are unaware that they even exist because many people are city dwellers and their whole life is around work and family do you think as well there's a natural tendency to be dismissive of aboriginal stories as uh, somehow wrapped up in folklore and mythology or uh, superstitious beliefs and I, i find this the same in north america and often the say the um the colony population looks at the, the the First Nations and says, well, actually, you know, this is just part of their superstitious belief. We probably see this as a, a spiritual retelling of some sort of tale instead of the, you know, the nuts and bolts tale that it is living next door to a large animal that you befriended and cohabited with in a, a harmonious way, you know, to get on with life. Yes, yes. <clears throat> no, that's exactly the, the way it's always been. Yeah. Uh, 
only only in recent years have uh, uh, the the original Australians, the Aboriginal people, uh, really uh, uh, being rediscovered, say, mm. by the the modern Australian people and realizing how astounding they are. And, and we've come a, a long way, like. Yeah. Say in the United States, for instance, or Canada, um, in Australia, the federal parliament and all the state parliaments <coughs> and the local government councils, they fly the Aboriginal flag. They start every meeting with saying we pay our respects to the uh, traditional owners of the land because, because the Aboriginal people never ceded the land to, to, to yeah. the white settlers, the white invaders, and uh, they say always was and always will be Aboriginal land. You haven't paid There is it. no bill of sale, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. There's, no, there's no bill of sale. There's no yeah. treaty. Uh, yeah. It's our land. And, and Aboriginal people are wonderful people like they did. You know, <clears throat> all they ever asked for was an apology. Uh, and wow. uh, absolutely wonderful people. Uh, and, and, uh, and, of course, they're... Uh, and they follow their their uh, uh, their whole culture, which is that you can't own land. Yeah. The land you're part of the landscape. Uh, city dwellers can't comprehend that, but country people know that the land owns you. Like you, yeah. you could buy a farm, say, but then you've got to maintain that farm. Yeah, like, it doesn't you know, produce, <laughs> then it, yeah, you don't survive, right? I'd love to see. Um, I'd love to see the example so, of the tracks because I think it's it's. An, I'm wondering what what type of footprint they have. Is it ape-like or is it man-like? Yeah, no, a little bit man-like. So there's there's a Nimbinji, if you can see him there, uh, and that one was drawn by a a good friend of ours who was actually visiting us. We were renting a property. This this was in um, that was drawn by Joshua Clark. Yeah. Uh, and he and his mother uh, at 2 p.m. on the 23rd of March 1996 in Upper Maynard, which is only about uh, oh, 15 kilometres uh, inland from us. We, we were living there in a very remote place again. <coughs> and, uh, and 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 uh, they were walking up, up the, uh, the track to our house uh, and they had this amazing little hairy man come running downhill Wow. Uh, and and uh, they thought at first it was a child because that was actually our daughter Loana's birthday mm. uh, and they were coming for the birthday party and it, we were at the end of a three-kilometre driveway. So have you got a good view of that? Um, I can't see the print that well. If you move the page back slightly away from the camera, I think if you pull it back just a little bit more. Yes, there you go. That's a bit clearer now. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. interesting. It almost has a, a sort of a. Um, almost has a. It almost looks human-like, actually. Well, they they were positive that it was a child running mm. down um, towards them from the from the house, uh -huh. uh, and they were astounded how how well it could run down a steep slope, mm. a very steep slope, uh, and it wasn't running down the concrete driveway. It was running through the forest. This was all covered in eucalypt forest with a yeah. with a kangaroo grass underneath, and it was and it ran to up to them, and it suddenly saw them uh, and stopped and uh, and wow. and they and realised that it wasn't a child at all, that it was a a, a, a hair covered humanoid like like creature, um, some sort of. Uh, 
uh, animal. They'd never heard of such a thing. Uh, and then it, it dropped onto all fours and it knuckle walked like a chimpanzee oh. uh, and walked past them only about, you know, 10 or 15, 20 feet from them or something like that. Uh, and and then it wasn't frightened of them. And then it con continued down the steep slope, got back up into its hind legs and ran like a person. And then oh. these are the foot. These are the footprints that I found. So see if you can see them. I can see. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll put on the light on, actually. Yeah, yeah. I think it's slightly too close to the camera, but um, we'll see if that's. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, yeah, I can see it now. Yeah, I can yeah. see it. Perfect. It's one here. That's so amazing. These hmm. footprints I found, and his. There's the little stick structure there, and then there are the general footprints, and look like a, a handprints as well. Yeah, maybe that's from the knuckle walking. Yeah, yeah. but um, yeah. but this was, uh, and that was. I'll put this light down there. Not have a bit like that. Uh, so that was those footprints I found in two thousand and eight. I think it was uh, just near the house. Near here, uh, whereas the drawing was uh, was undertaken from that uh, 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 encounter in 1995, uh, uh, long distance away. But these footprints uh, they're in a wheel rut uh, on, found on the 12th of September 2008. And uh, so, so there you go. Like, and then as well as that, we've also encountered the the large yowie. Uh, I think it's you've had a sighting of that, haven't you? You had a, a yeah. Uh, yeah. Was that near your home as well, or was it further, further into the um, the forest? Yeah, that was further into the forest. So that was about. I think it was also in two thousand and eight that 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 occurred. Uh, and I was walking uh, uh, along the. We have a track that runs just as a track that runs to the beach runs for about one and a half kilometers to the beach when you get to the beach it's the wilderness beach like it's beautiful uh -huh. big waves and, and big sandy shore and not a soul to be seen for kilometers uh -huh. and uh and and uh so i was walking back just before before dusk it was still daylight bright daylight and i could hear something moving towards me pushing its way uh, and then there was through the thick vegetation, uh, and it's like the the the, um, the forest there is covered in these big scribbly gum trees uh, that they've got white trunks. Uh, mm -hmm. They're not very tall. They they quite have a quite a large canopy, uh, and um, and insects insects little little the larvae a caterpillar of a moth. Uh, bark, it leaves you little scribbles, so they're called scribbly gums. Mm. Uh, and then there's also giant old man banksias and, uh, uh, and the cypress pines, coastal cypress pines. And, uh, <coughs> and then under that is a very dense undergrowth of, of leptospermums, tea trees, um, uh, and in the family Myrtaceae. Uh, and and uh, an array of other other small plants, so it's quite dense. Uh, and I could hear something pushing its way through this uh, dense vegetation. Uh, and then every now and then there was a very loud crack, 
as if at first I thought it was something stepping on a stick, but then I realised no, it was like two big sticks being cracked together, wow. but very loud and sharp, a really loud crack. And anyway, that went on for the next fifteen minutes as this animal came in towards me to within only a few meters and then it walked uh, up the track and then back towards me again and then I pushed my way in to try to have a look at it I, mm. I was looking with binoculars and at one time I could see something moving like I think I saw some brown, like brown hair or something mm. fur moving it was definitely wasn't the vegetation moving because I was watching to see if I could see if, um, you know but <coughs> but uh, I didn't get much of a glimpse of that however uh, and anyway I I so that was my my only encounter with a yeah. yow, even though I've heard them um, with their incredible bellowing roars and gurgles and and uh, barks. They have amazing calls, which I've heard on very rare occasions. Mm -hmm. But uh, when they when I have heard them, it's usually been two or three in the morning, and the calls will go on for five minutes or so. It'll be ninety wow. to a hundred calls, but re repetitive, like the same calls again and again and again. Uh -huh. Really powerful calls like you say uh, like a bark or like a howl as you see on some of these finding major <coughs> style programs is it more of a, a barking sound like uh, 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 the two different uh, the two uh, the the two different occasions that where i listened to them for five minutes each time one was a bellowing roar it was sort of like yay 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 like that it went on for five minutes and after about five minutes two dingoes started to howl or three dingoes oh. i could compare the sound and it was only coming from a couple of hundred meters away from rainforest you know in a, in a remote quiet place with no other you know it was all forest around me and uh, and of course it was absolutely unlike any other animal i'd heard but i'd heard something similar in new guinea in 1973 mm. and 74 mm. Um, in the high altitude mountains when I was with the Wow Ecology Institute and we were studying birds of paradise and what have you in Papua New Guinea. Yeah. And then also had, had roars. I, at one time I had three or four very loud, almost lion-like roars in a remote, very remote piece of rainforest in 1975. 19, uh, uh, yeah, 75. So, yes, yeah, so, and then... New Guinea, is it, is it called the Kayadi in Papua New Guinea? They have something there, there. That's it, yeah, yeah. And, and I actually saw, I actually saw uh, uh, something cross the track in front of me. I took it to be a person, but we're in very remote, high-altitude forest i think we we're four and a half five thousand feet wow. uh, 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 and uh, uh the undisturbed rainforest and there was a a, a a track through it i think they were planning to log it or something so mm -hmm. i think there was but it had never been disturbed or just a track through it and uh, oh, a couple of hundred feet or something in front of me what <coughs> um, what i took to be a person stepped out of the forest onto the track and and uh, like uh, the New Guineans, of course, they're living in the valleys, and they were very traditional in those mm. days, in seventies, in, in many areas. Uh, and uh, but the, the New Guineans don't move around by themselves, and they're always armed, of course, they have bows and arrows and stone axes and and uh, and spears and and dilly bags, and they never go into the forest by themselves, and they uh, <coughs> they always go in groups. Because you could meet other tribes, mm -hmm. uh, and 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 uh, they're all in. They all have their territorial boundaries, yeah. and there used to be tribal 
warfare going on. It's a bit like the Ameri- the um, South American Indians. Uh, of course, yeah. they're, they're, they're more closely related to Aboriginal people and African uh, Negro, uh, Negro pygmies that, you know, they... Yeah. <laughs> That, that bit of look to them, uh, they're not. They were pygmy people as well, not as not as almost as small as the as the African pygmies. Uh, and uh, but this individual, um, you know, had like it was just all black. I, I couldn't tell. I I wasn't expecting to see yeah. to see anybody. And then so I watched I watched him. It was a male. It looked like a male, but it looked like he had no clothes on or he was all black. Um, but the, the New Guineans are dark skinned anyway, yeah. uh, and uh, and sort of curly haired, and uh, but I couldn't see if he was covered in hair or whatever. I didn't even think about that. I just thought, oh, there's a person for some reason. What's he doing there in such a remote locality? Yeah. Uh, and then he he walked along the track a short distance away from me, and then dropped down to where there was a a, a biologist studying birds birds in a hide, uh, and uh, and so, and I just thought, oh, Thane um, must have organised to meet someone here, but I couldn't understand how how that could have happened because you know yeah. it was a very remote locality that we were working in, and uh, and he never saw anything, and he he couldn't really believe me that oh. he had no, no way of a person. And this so would anyway, have been outside of the um, outside of the the scope of the villages and where they would normally live. This is this is an uninhabitable yeah, exactly. area essentially on the mountain. That's right, because you know they're in the mostly in the valleys or, or in cleared yeah. areas on hilltops. But these, um, in this area, this was yeah very remote, undisturbed rainforest yeah. where no one ever, no one ever uh, travelled through. And and if they did, on on very rare occasions, go hunting there, they'd go in a group. They wouldn't be, they wouldn't be roaming around by themselves, uh, and, and they would definitely not be wandering around without any clothing on. Or because I mean, I didn't know if he was just dressed in. He might have been like just a normal New Guinean man, dark skinned, yeah. and he might have had a dark pair of shorts on, you know, and bare feet like yeah. how they normally go around. Uh, 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 and I thought it must have been a, a New Guinean man, but you know, what was he doing up here? Uh, and whether he was he was responsible for the the occasional loud bellowing roars that yeah. I was hearing of an animal that was sort of unknown to science, I don't really know. But <laughs> It seems like a, a stretch to make him a man in that sense, or at least to, to, to attribute him to the roars, even if, if it was um, a person living yeah. alone up in the mountains somehow or checking you guys out. It's unlikely, you know, he's going to be the same author of those huge, you know, uh, shattering They're roars. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so... Uh, and, and of course, you know, I never imagined for one thing minute there was any unknown animals because mm. you know that, that you know they'd been um, um, there were British and Australian colonies in the in northern northeastern New Guinea where I was I spent a lot of one and a half years and stuff. Um, that was the German colony until the Second World War when the okay. uh, the First World War when the Australians took it off the Germans and then it's yeah. all a, it's all a uh, it's been a uh, a, 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 a nation, self-governing nation. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful people, fabulous people. Papua New Guinea, one of the most fabulous places on earth with fabulous birds of paradise and giant butterflies. And it's just absolutely magnificent and relatively undisturbed compared to the rest of the world. But, but yes, yeah, so, and, then, and then these other calls I heard in 1996, there was a group of 90 to 100 barks 
uh, in groups of three that were sort of like, yeah, 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 and in gurgle, but powerful, like, you know, just like un <laughs> unlike anything, not unlike anything I'd ever heard. I mean, and to point before, out as well, in relation to that, Gary, you've run a show for many, many years where you identify Australian wildlife by their calls. So yeah, you, yeah, you are, you're extremely well placed to identify what you are hearing or to not be able to identify it actually is, is significant of its unknown authenticity. Right? Yeah. And a lot of people might and, not know that listening to that, that's, that's one of your expert areas of expertise, identifying yeah. a, a natural and local wildlife by its, by its core. And, and so I've done, I've undertaken like over a hundred fauna and flora surveys, you know, for local government wow. councils and, and, bureaucracies and private enterprise and you identify the the fauna mostly by their calls because like if you go bird watching or something in a place like australia where there's large numbers or any place in, and in thick forest you identify the animals by their calls or the signs of the animals so you hear different birds most of the time you don't even get to see them because they're too difficult to see in the in the canopy say uh, and moving through the through the forest some species easier to see than others, of course. Uh, and then the animals, of course, you see very little signs of them, but you de determine what's around by the the by the scratch marks. The bandicoots make little diggings. The echidnas have particular scratches. The koalas and the goannas and the possums have very mm. distinctive scratches climbing up trees, etc., like that. So, yes, yeah, so I spent most of my life in the wilderness uh, doing fauna and flora surveys. Uh, often being paid, but also often just for my own enjoyment, because that was my greatest interest in life since childhood was being out in the countryside, uh, identifying all the plants and animals and reading books like Gerald Durrell's My Family and Other Animals and things like that. They were like my heroes were all wildlife experts and, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time zoos and wildlife parks. Yeah, yeah, and sort of like I've had this fabulous life with having as little to do with civilization as possible. Sounds and like a dream. And <laughs> Sounds like and, a wonderful and no, dream. And no stress, no stress, because, you know, I grew up in a time where um, the, no one had ever heard of words like career or investments or whatever. Yeah. And, that, um, you know, we spent most of our time just enjoying ourselves. You know, we didn't, we didn't try it. We didn't think about the future of making large sums of money. Uh, everyone was easygoing. You know, my parents, uh, you know, we'd go on long holidays uh, and uh, uh, for months on end and they'd say, oh, you should have really gone back to school, but we might stay a bit longer. And i go, oh, you don't want to go back to school there. No, no. <laughs> well, exactly. We'll I mean, no, look, nobody is in school anymore. It's um, it's, it's a funny <laughs> thing, actually, to me that I um. Me and my wife, we moved to London in 2009. I met her here, actually. She's from Israel, and um, I'm from Wales, which is a much quieter place, even the capital compared to, to London. And uh, we got careers in corporate healthcare, and um, I ran clinics in Harley Street for many, many years, 50-hour weeks with you know three-hour commutes every day and the rest of it. And then in 2013, we got pregnant. We decided we wanted to have a baby later. I was 37 then already. And um, one of the one of the ladies in one of the, the investment companies that was involved in the clinic said something really strange to us. She was in her 30s and she said, that's really strange that you're having the baby. I thought you were very career-minded. And we both were shocked by that. We said, well, why would that mean we wouldn't have children? 
this is insane for a career, for a bit of money every year that you spend and make back again and pay out to somebody. That doesn't make any sense. Of course, we're going to have children. We can't pass it up. Um, and she was quite confused by it. Why would you throw away your career for, for family? And that to me was yeah. the most confusing, but also the most, that, that was the most London centric statement anybody's ever said to me. <laughs> yes, yeah. And, yeah. and see, it's like someone from my generation, but I mean, of course, there's other people who have different outlooks. And of course, I'm third generation Australian, which is nothing compared to the original Australians who have been here for. 60, 70, 80,000 years, they found a, a, a hearth, a fireplace at Warrnambool on the Victorian coast that's been accurately dated at 120,000 years, wow. which is twice as long as we believe that um, the original Australians, the, the Aboriginal people have, have been here. And it's not, it's definitely a hearth, but they, <laughs> maybe there was Homo, uh, homo erectus or something. Uh, and some people believe that, you know, the Yowie actually is Homo erectus. We don't really know it, what it is, but, um, yeah. you know, it's yeah. it's most similar to Gigantopithecus, but that mm. shouldn't be here either. Because well, there's going to be also, a... Well, we've got a few teeth, a few teeth and some bone fragments of the jaw to, to identify Gigantopithecus. Who really knows what it looked like? Um, one of the questions yeah. I was going to ask you, and I'm reading people like Jeff Meldrum, and he's got some... Uh, he made a few... Um, I suppose, uh, theories about the different types of wild men around the world. And there was the giant man-ape type, there was the relict uh, ape, and then the Neanderthaloid type, as well as the hobbit type. Do you think that the Yowie, especially in in uh, terms of foot morphology, fits into the giant man-ape type, like the the Sasquatch or the Yerin? Is this a similar kind of creature? Yeah, I think it's the same species, and uh, I think that I can't think, I can't imagine it could be anything else. Mm. Uh, that it's a uh, because the descriptions of the behaviours of Sasquatch and Bigfoot and maybe Yerns uh, almost identical to the descriptions of of Yowies. Uh, the same build, the same look, the very similar footprints, and the uh, same behaviour, uh, and uh, you know, and my own brother, uh, he he lives up up at Limpenwood, which is about an hour's drive from here. It, it's got it's right up on the. Uh, you've got a house. You've got you've got a couple of hundred acres of land, wow. and it's it's all surrounded by rainforest, and uh, uh, and and he's had. He's had encounters with with Yowies up there, and he's heard them talking. He mm. said that you, know, you can hear them, sort of all these sort of yeah. sort of loud communications. He, he had one run down his veranda. My nephew, his son Simeon, he watched one for several minutes, only a few meters away, at six uh-huh. in the morning uh, from the veranda. Uh, it was a about seven foot tall and black haired and slim and it just stood there looking at them. They were just sort of looking at each other. He said the best thing he's ever seen. Wow. And uh, but once again my brother's been there for decades. Mm. Uh, but he's only ever seen the occasional one or heard them on very mm. rare occasions. And I would uh, assume they were acclimatized to his presence as well. And even even with that, you know, they're still incredibly elusive and shy. Yes, and they, they seem to live, you can find their tracks higher up 
the mountainside uh, and uh, yeah were found where they uh, they use their their claws or their talons or their fingernails to uh, tear away the bark of trees oh, yeah. Yeah. Under in the under the rainforest on the trunks only occasionally we have we have yellowtail black cockatoos which are giant parrots the size of a core with about a meter wingspan, and they rip the bark off the trees as well to get at uh, wood boring grubs, uh, and uh, witchetty grubs and what have you, um, but but uh, the, the activity from a uh, from a yow is quite different. I've got a here's a here's a once again, there's a there's a photograph just here. Oh, I can see that now. Yeah, if you can see that, see how that's, that's better. Yeah, um, yeah, torn in strips. Torn in strips. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I yeah. found about five hundred examples of this in one locality. Wow. That's an, an illustration by Barry Olive uh -huh. of um, of the Yowie. But uh, yeah, that's the that's the strips that uh, very precisely done with fingernails. I'll show you. Um, is it? Um, you're looking at another. Um, oh, there you go. That's what I was going to ask you. Actually, okay. So it uh, does appear to have a very ape-like appearance. Does it have a muzzle, or does it have a uh, separated nose and mouth, or does it, is it all under one muzzle? Sorry, it, it, I was saying that very clearly. But yeah, it's very, uh, very human-like, uh, very human-like. But then, you know, um, it's but but not human at the same time. So mm. it's very much like what uh, those videos and photos and what have you, uh, and illustrations of, of Sasquatch. Bigfoot. They all. They all seem to be very similar. They seem to be almost the same species, but different geographical uh, populations. But the yeah. bizarre thing is how such animals could survive uh, undetected to the present. But here in Australia, the yowies are common. I mean, yeah. there's there's many many reports of them. There's huge numbers of reports of them. Uh, many people encounter them, and not many people come forward. In the old days, they didn't because people would laugh at them. You yeah, well, imagine yeah, you, yeah. you saw a boogie, you boogie, saw boogie a what? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sure, uh, sure. But, or talk but, about your yeah. promotion next year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, so, uh, but you have to live here yeah. um, to... To understand the place, like I've I've never even been to Europe or England, so to, mm. the whole place to me is unimaginable. And for like for a long time, I could almost hardly believe that it actually existed. Yeah, well, sure. <laughs> because sure. if you if you haven't been there, it's um you know it's almost as if it well, only exists. Tell you, it, it, it almost actually. doesn't at the moment. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, uh, well, it's it you know it's strange for a lot of British people as well because we have this. Uh, I explained to somebody the other day that. Um, the office that uh, was the UK National Ecosystem Assessment was uh, performed in 2012, and they discovered it was something like uh, it was, I don't try and get the figure. I don't have it. It was 6.8 percent, I believe. I, I might have reversed that from 8.6. 8.6 .6 of the entire country, including rural settlements and roads, was urban sprawl of Britain. 
And when you looked at the individual nations, 1.9% of Scotland was urban sprawl, 4.6% of Wales, 10.6% of England. And you think, well, actually, when you get out there like I have, you realise even here, there's nobody around in the country. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's just yeah. nobody about. And if there were to be things here like big cats, which we most certainly have, um, then, yeah, they could quite easily out um especially if they're nocturnal and that ultimate you know that never-ending blackness of the countryside after dark um and as a city dweller most people they don't think about that they don't think about when you go outside the country at night time there is no light there's only the stars there's only the moon if you have it there's there's no street lights and lamps and road signs and well-illuminated paths and anything could walk about with complete anonymity if it wished to you know for the most part um which doesn't it doesn't mean that anything does exist but i think in a place like australia where the interior especially when who's even there nobody's there um yeah i'm sure so many things could absolutely exist undiscovered and quite happily with others and and uh, like watching tv in australia a lot of documentaries and uh, uh, other other shows, you know, about towns or what have you. Even like mm. e- English people, English uh, presenters coming to Australia uh, mm. uh, uh, and uh, travelling around Australia on the trains or what have you, and they're visiting various remote localities. And then with these wonderful uh, 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 drone cameras, mm. the the camera, the drone, the camera will climb up into the air. And so they're having a, you know, talk could be a camel farm or something or other or, or, or you know, some, whatever. And then you'll see just undisturbed forest to the horizon. Like just, oh. <laughs> and, and, that, and that's all over Australia, not in the, in the uh, fertile southeastern portion where it's nearly all farmland and I'm sure mm. it would look very similar to, say, uh, um, much of the northern hemisphere. Yeah. But as soon as you get into the more arid country it's just vast it's unending it, it's just astounding how much country and even being an, an australian mm. uh, having lived here obviously all my life uh you, it's astounding <laughs> how much actual wilderness there is now i mean there there's uh there's uh, you know a lot of environmental destruction going on anywhere near the towns and what have you but as soon as you get away from the uh, agricultural areas, mm. like the three quarters of the of the continent is just absolute wilderness. There was that famous uh, movie made called Tracks, the true story of a woman um, who uh, obtained three camels and rode from the centre of Australia at Alice Springs wow. uh, to the Western Australian coast, and it took her many weeks. And like it was just complete wilderness the the whole wow. way, you know. She had, an occasional Aboriginal encampment or or yeah. a, a remote white white settler, um, but otherwise it was just complete wilderness the entire the entire trip, and and, and it's it's really vast. But but of course, the majority of the population live in cities, and and uh, yeah, uh, all we know is is um, you know houses and streets, and and they can't imagine. And as I, as most of us would, you know, it's. Not. It's beyond the skill set of most of us to live in those rural settings. Even, um, yeah. I mean, I, I desire it nonstop, but endlessly. But my wife's a bit of a silly lady from Tel Aviv. And you know, the possibility of even being in the English countryside 10 miles from a town terrifies her. 
<laughs> which yeah, is yeah, yeah, yeah. not really too far. It's very there are roads to everywhere. So, but yeah. that's just like I guess people have different uh, concepts of what it is to be in the countryside. And yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, for me, it's it's just a paradise. Gary, I think I'll I'll, I'll leave it there and say goodbye to you. But um, I just want to thank you for sharing that sighting because the Nimbinji to me that that's a new character to add to the pantheon of Australian cryptids and, and absolutely fascinating. Yeah, okay, lovely to talk with you again, Andy. You too. Bye-bye.